0: Because in a lot of ways, you think about the people that have been around him. They've seen him heal. They've seen him teach with authority. They've seen him be in different places, doing very different things than what they're used to. And then Jesus gathers them together and pronounces blessing upon them. Right? Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Right? Imagine him looking at people and saying, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Right? So the people that are following him, he's blessed. That's the first thing he does in gathering these people who are following him together. It leaves the question, though, in the air about what they're used to hearing in the synagogue and around town, right? Their, their normal culture in Galilee, where he is, would have been the Pharisee culture, right? So historically, the Pharisees, as a sect, set set up their camp, in a sense, in Galilee, and their whole purpose in terms of how they approached life was to think about with all the secular pressures that were coming against Israel through the Greek culture and now through the Roman culture, how do we respond faithfully? And their answer was to follow the law. If they followed the law, they believed, and did it to the best of their ability, then God would bless Israel. God would bless Israel. So the first thing Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is to call blessing on people that did not fit that mold. You have lepers coming. You have prostitutes probably in that crowd. You have sinners and tax collectors who are gathered on this mountain. And the first thing Jesus does is upend their cultural understanding of what it means to be blessed. So the next thing he's going to do now is dive into the very thing the Pharisees held the most dear, and that was the Torah, the law. And he's going to go right into the center of it and, and take a knife to the way that they understood it. So let's hear. Because a lot of times I think when we hear the Sermon on the Mount, we hear it in our modern ears, disassociated from the people that Jesus is talking to. And then we start to moralize just like the Pharisees do. But I, I hope we can hear it differently today. So let's imagine you're in the crowd. Imagine you don't fit in to the system of the day And now you hear these words from Jesus. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Okay, just hit pause. <laughs> How do you feel right now? <laughs> this is not, like he just went from blessing and now we, now we're in hell, right? So he goes on. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out till you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to stumble cut it off throw it away it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell it has been said Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on oath at all, either by heaven or by heaven for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Lord, I pray you help us to hear your word today. Amen. So when I said yes to preach this week, I didn't look at the passage, (laughs) and in my heart I said to Eduardo, "How dare you!" And secondly, I said, "I swear I'll never do this again," which means I broke two of the things that Jesus is talking about here already. Which means I'm completely unqualified to preach this. And the third one, well, it just happens. I'm a guy, so I'm totally unqualified to preach anything with authority from these commands that Jesus is giving. And I don't think any of us in this room are, right? What is he doing? I don't know about you, but if I were in the crowd, I'd be stirred. Like, right? whoa. It was hard enough under the yoke of the Pharisees to follow all of this stuff. Now you're adding this? this is, you're supposed to be the guy that's bringing us the good news. Right? Instead, it feels potentially like there's a weight being thrown onto the people's shoulders here that's completely unbearable. One of the ways that I've heard people interpret this is that Jesus is intentionally doing this to draw us to grace, right? to make it show that none of us can do this. I, 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 based on song, based on Deuteronomy, based on the whole trajectory, I think Jesus is saying, no, this is exactly This is exactly the way we're supposed to act. This is what my people, this is what jesus people look like. So I want to give a metaphor that might help. So imagine a people who were made to feast on healthy, delicious, five-star Michelin-quality food. They were given all the kitchen tools, the ingredients. You know, Master Chef, right? Imagine they had everything at their disposal. All the best equipment and a pantry like nobody's pantry. Everything they needed was there. But their history is rife with them messing up the meal. And this is where the Pharisees are, right? They view Israel in that state of disrepair. And so in a time of renewal, what happens is the focus then becomes on knowing the tools and knowing the ingredients and knowing the process as best you possibly can. And yet you forget about the, the meal. Right? So everybody's focused on like, getting the tools right, getting the ingredients right, following the recipe to a T, and yet nobody's enjoying the meal. And along comes the master chef. And he starts feeding you. He's using the same tools, the same ingredients, the same everything that everybody else has used. But suddenly you're tasting something. That's what Jesus does when he comes on the scene. People are like, he teaches, but with authority. He heals. People stand up amazed. They're they're following him. They want to be with this guy because he's a master chef. And everybody else that they've dealt with, including their own home, just pales in comparison to what he's offering. And so they're following him, wanting to find out how in the world does he do it. I want to be able to do that too. And so now what Jesus is doing is helping us to see how he handles the law, the most important tool in the kitchen, in a sense. And I think what we're going to find is actually there's incredibly good news in here. One thing we miss in this is that Jesus actually is humorous. There's humor in here that we miss in our Western ears, but for a Jewish person to, to hear some of the things he says here, you, you can catch things both as a dire warning and as a completely funny thing in the Jewish mindset. You can hold both of those at the same time, and Jesus is doing just that. He's throwing, in the sense, an exaggeration so far that you can start to chuckle inside and yet realize, whew, I'm there. Right? Um, you, any good comedian does this. We laugh at the things the most that kind of hit home the closest that and we're like, oh gosh, I'm like that too, right? And they exaggerate it. They take it to a farther degree and you 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 start to chuckle. And yet you also realize, I, I wish that could change, anything. right? And in a lot of ways I think that's what Jesus is doing. They were used to hearing from Pharisees that just felt like it's a wooden law. It has no life in it. Jesus starts to animate it. And he takes it to the to the nth degree. The Pharisees, what he's saying is, you think the Pharisees were doing well? No. They were missing the point. You need to go the whole distance. And the whole distance means forget it. We're all all at the mercy of God. What's interesting too to me, I I was kind of figuring out, like, why does Jesus start with murder? Adultery and oaths. Like you know, if you think of him preparing this, it's like, okay, what three things am I going to hit on first, right? Uh, why not pride? Why not like? Why does he choose these three? And it got me thinking. Um, you know, let's go back to Genesis, the beginning, right? Adam and Eve do the deed. They they create the fall. They bring in the enemy to start ruling in the earth. And after they have kids, what's the first thing that happens? Murder, right? Then Genesis, interestingly enough, I don't know why, but instead of going on to talk about anything, it goes through Cain's descendants, and it goes through this guy named Lamech all of a sudden. So right after the murder, you find out about this guy Lamech who has two wives, adultery, and boasts with an oath. If anybody wrongs me, I swear, they're going to get 11 times the punishment that Cain got. So I wonder if Jesus is going back to the very beginning and saying, look, if this didn't go wrong, these three commands wouldn't even be in your lexicon. If you want to see what the real purpose of your life is supposed to be, let's go back to the beginning and change the story. Mm-hmm. And you think, you think that by simply not murdering, you're doing okay? No. No. So what's happening here, I think, is Jesus is saying, when you go down to the depths of it, you realize you're you're not even living the life you were meant to live. And I'm coming here to bring that to you. That's what you're starting to taste. The Pharisees failed in giving you a vision of the life you were meant to lead. Instead, you're focused on the process. Like, I can become holy by just doing this, this, and this. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to remake the whole thing. I want to start you off from a completely different foundation. Not obeying the law, but being a new humanity. Having a new heart. And those are the promises, the prophets of old game. And Jesus is coming to fulfill that. So he starts with murder. He says, you've heard it was said, yeah, by God, <laughs> you shall not murder. God gave that to Moses. He's, I mean, he's doing something audacious here, right? You heard God say, don't murder, but I say, oh, (laughs) everyone's on edge now, right? How dare he say this? So um, this last month in January and then the first of February, I go to the bank every month in the very beginning to both kind of make a deposit, make a withdrawal. And in January, I went up to the, uh, I thought, I'll go through the drive-thru. It'll probably be quicker. So I go up to the drive-thru, and there's two lanes. One's close to the bank. There was a truck there. I went to the one far, you know, it's the kind, you hit the button, Miles loves this, right? You hit the button, the thing flies out. So I used that lane. So I did all my stuff, it flew up over there, the truck leaves, and I'm sitting there looking at the people in the bank, who were, nobody's looking out at me. So there's this little call button, I wait a few minutes, there's a little call button, I hit the call button, nobody turns. They're all like talking story in the bank to each other, Three people go into the bank. They wait on the three people. I keep hitting the call button. I'm doing this, you know. I actually honk my heart. Nobody looks at me. I pull out finally. I'm all tiffed. I go in the bank. And then there's three people in front of me now. I'm waiting, (laughs) waiting. A truck pulls up and they wait on the truck. Yeah, right. So I'm like, these people, these stuff. Uh. So I do the transaction. I'm mad. I'm short with a person. I get what I want. I leave. And I feel like just gross inside, right? Um, why did I get so angry about 10 extra minutes out of my life? taking it Why did I judge the people behind the counter like they were absolute, complete idiots compared to my system of the way of operating in the world, right? So a month later, I go back. I drive in, I'm like, I'm going to go inside. Right? So I'm thinking of the last experience. So I'm going to go inside. So I pull in, I go inside. There's three people in line in front of me. One teller is working on them. Nobody's in the drive through And there's two other tellers just talking to each other, joking. Like actually you know, telling jokes. I'm like, Okay, there's five people in line here. Nobody's over there. And they're doing nothing. And now and my blood pressure is starting to go up again. Okay? And then a, a car pulls up. Two of those two people go over there and they're waiting on it. I'm like, oh. then then another person comes in from lunch. Who I know. Her name's Robin, and she's like, you know, walking like this fast, right? Like, there's a long line in here. You're coming back in. She's getting things right. She goes over, talks to the other two people. I'm just I'm starting to get up, and then finally she opens the window, calls me over, and I go up, and. Uh, I forgot to sign to do the deposit slip. Like, oh, I have to get that, so I go get that. I start filling it out. I mean, it's going to take me ten seconds, right? She goes, "Hold on, I'll go." I'll, while you do that, I'll go wait on the people over. And they're driving up. I'm like, "No!" <laughs> she turned over. Like, I'm like, "What? I want to finish my transaction." Good for you. I keep filling it out, right? And then I get that sense from the Lord like, again. Again, right? So I look up and I'm like, Robin, I'm sorry. You're just inheriting a history here that you have no right to inherit. Uh, Forgive me for treating you like this. And uh, go ahead and wait on them. I'll finish this. He says, no, I can can wait on you. So we did a finished transaction. I I left feeling a little different. Jesus says that I just murdered Robin. (laughs) (laughs) And the week before I murdered Grace. And it's true. Why? Because they became just tools for my whatever I want. They weren't human beings anymore. They were commodities for me, which is murder in God's eyes. That's not how God created them to be. He created them to be honored, to have a sense of purpose and joy in life, to know relationship with other people that's good and right, and to know the Lord intimately. And I just took a knife and went right through there. Just because of simple anger. Jesus is right here. And he's saying, don't neuter God's law by focusing on avoiding murder. See how I've come to show you that God's law wants you to live in his way. His world is meant to be at peace. And anger is the seed that when planted leads to murder. Mm -hmm. So, Don't go partway, go the full distance. Can you see what the master chef is doing here? Even though his words are sharp, convicting, and invite us to a seemingly impossible standard, behind is the king who longs to see the kingdom the way it was meant to be. He wants to give us a feast. And he's setting the table for us, even by pointing out these things. Uh, I came across this story of one minister while I was studying who shared this. He said, while my wife and I were shopping at a mall, a shapely young woman in a short, form-fitting dress strolled by. My eyes followed her. Without looking up from the item that my wife was examining, she asked, was it worth the trouble you're in? <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing here. Right? he's actually being humorous in terms of gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, right? Like he's, he's showing the same kind of laughter that we're laughing here. I'm guessing the people heard, hearing Jesus when he said those things, like, yes, yeah, we get it, right? Is it really worth the trouble that we're in to go down the road of lust, whether it's sexual or any other way? Jesus is highlighting a sexual one here. It isn't, it isn't. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, um, puts a metaphor this way. with These are folks that, are, that have uh, died and are on their way on a bus going up to heaven. And they get into kind of this middle land before heaven. And each of them has something they have to deal with in order to actually see the reality of Jesus' kingdom. And this guy has a red lizard on his shoulder. He keeps whispering in his ear, whispering in his ear. And it's meant to be a picture of lust. And the man wrestles with it over and over again until finally he just kind of takes it and rips it and throws it down on the ground. And then C.S. Lewis does something really beautiful. He says when he threw it on the ground, the red lizard began to get um, metamorphosis. It began to change. And out from the ground where it fell came a beautiful stallion. And then the man was invited to go get up on the stallion and he rode off into Jesus. And I think that's a lot of what Jesus is doing here. This isn't about adultery. This is about something that you were meant to experience in life that lust completely corrupts. Because lust, just like anger, is all about me, right? It's a drug in a lot of ways where you think it'll work for you, but you just want more and more and more and more and never satisfies. Jesus asked He created us to be people that are self-giving that give ourselves to others, and that's where we find that kind of satisfaction that we long for in the same way he highlights divorce here, where and he's purposely I think being male dominant here. he's coming from the male perspective because that was the corruption of the day, right women in that day, they were like property in terms of divorce, and he, so he brings up the the law that they grabbed onto in order to be able to push women aside and go on to the next one that would satisfy them and basically saying, you're doing the same thing as lust with your adultery laws. They're all corrupt in that sense. And so in one stroke, he elevates women, convicts men, and invites them to see a different order of those two coming together. Again, hearkening back to Adam and Eve. I think he's, what he's doing in a way is redefining the law of Moses as creation law. This isn't just the law God randomly gives you. This is the order of the universe in which you're meant to live. And so he's saying, don't neuter my dad's beautiful law by focusing on your definitions of adultery. God wants his beautiful children to live in, in a way of mutual giving with each other like it was meant to be in the first place, like Adam and Eve were meant to experience with the Lord in their presence, unashamed, even in their nakedness, and not using each other in their nakedness for their own. Do whatever you can, even gouging out of your eye or cutting off your hand to get there. It's worth it. It's worth it to go in that direction. And then finally, he brings up speech. He highlights making oaths. And what's at the heart of this? Um, again, I think it's harkening back to Genesis, but also think of how often our mouth gets us into trouble, right? Amen. And in a way, this oath culture systematized a selfish way of using your speech. Like it guarantees you kind of what you want. Like I swear by Jerusalem, I will be right. So my honor now is covered by this bigger thing even though my mouth is corrupt. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't go there. That whole system essentially confirms you're you're just a lying, unfaithful, untrustworthy person. That whole system just highlights the corruptness. Don't do that. Just say yes or no. Uh, In our neighborhood where we live, um, folks, it's Federal Street in Wisconsin. There's this Federal Street group of people. They like to get together in the summer for parties and things like that. And we'll go sometimes. But I always feel like a fish out of water. Uh, so we live in a... Uh, we live on the street, but we don't live like our neighbors in a lot of ways. So we're a one-income missionary, one-income family, right? These are a lot of retired folks who have had very good careers, come in, cheaply buy a house in Maine and have lots of extra income. So the conversations the beliefs, the interests, their experiences, all are very different than mine. Like, um, you know, I was in one conversation at one point, they were like, hey, what do you think about all the new restaurants that are around town? I'm like, yeah, they look good from the outside. You know? <laughs> so, um, this guy, when I was at my table, you know, I'm like, your table, yeah. So, so there's a miss, right? And, uh, um, and so, but my, what, what I do in those situations, is so with my mouth, is I try desperately to fit in. I don't let my yes be yes or my no be no. I try to put on a will that will be acceptable to all these people that I feel insecure and unequal to and all this other stuff. It's stupid, Jesus says. That's just stupid. Don't do that. That's the same thing as making an oath with Jerusalem. Like I'm making an oath with this guy that if I can say the right things, I'm going to fit in. And shut up. Shut right? up. Jesus is like taking the shackles off of that system. and saying, stop it. I love you the way I made you. Stick with it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't neuter by law by welcoming oaths and other ways of distorting yourself into the center. Instead, clean that out. Live in the truth. That's where real freedom is. So what are we to do with this? Again, going back to the master chef analogy, um, I think one of the things he's highlighting is, here's the meal. I'm going to feed it to you. Now you go start making the same meal. But I don't know how. Perfect. And I think that's actually part of the central thing of what Jesus is doing here. You know how when he tells a parable, especially those that are kind of obscure, right? Right? Like the parable of the, the very, one of the first ones recorded in all the Gospels is the seeds that are thrown out on different parts of the ground, right? He gets done telling it. The crowds are like, ah. The disciples are like, what the heck did you just do? We have no idea what you're talking about. Like, you're supposed to come out and say something profound, and you just gave like a farming story. And he goes, oh, well, the secrets of the kingdom of God are given to you. Why? Because they came back and asked. And I think, in a way, that's the design of the Sermon on the Mount. In the end, he says, anybody who does these things is like somebody who puts their house on a rock. Right now, your houses are all on sand. But if you come to me, and you start asking me, and you start interacting with me, and you start learning from me, your house is slowly going to start changing its foundation so that when storms come, you're going to stand. And so I think this actually has to do with like, becoming apprentices. Jesus is inviting us to start learning life with him. Not like we can master it on our own, which is the way the Pharisees thought they could do it. So he's inviting us to start doing things in a different way, living in the Jesus-y way. And it's not about becoming that overnight, it's about practicing it, and we slowly become more and more like the master. And I think that's the reality of our lives. We have to practice. So we already are well-practiced in certain ways, the ways of the world, right? It's whatever way the current is going, we've learned to practice things in certain ways that have in some ways created us as masters of certain things. Like me at that party, I've mastered in a way how to navigate crucifying my own self to get along with others, right? I figured out how to do that over many years of life. So how do we start practicing in different ways? I think this is actually an invitation for us to prayer, just like it was for these people, to come and follow Jesus and enter into a conversation as you live life day to day. For many of us, I think prayer is can be a lot about like our lists, right? Like here's the things I want to bring to God. What if prayer was like you with a master and you're the apprentice and you're in a conversation around how do I go about my day? So for instance, as I'm driving up to the bank, okay, master chef, how do I go in here and deliver a beautiful meal? Suddenly, it's not about my transaction. It's about something radically different. I'm now seeing the bank not as a commodity for me to get something. I'm seeing it as a possibility for a meal of Jesus' proportions to be shared through simple things like treating somebody with kindness, honoring them, maybe letting somebody else go in front of me in line and say, I'll be slow today, that's okay. How we drive, how we go to the bank, how do we deal with our anger, when we start getting angry with our kids or our friends or our neighbors, how do we internally go to prayer in that and say, Jesus, start making me more like you. What, what's a practice, a, a practice I could put in my life that would make that change? It would start turning the knob in a different direction than the way it's been going. So it's not trying hard, it's practicing. Little things change us over time, just like exercise or eating or things like that. So, one cycle that I think of that might be coming out of this in the Sermon on the Mount is this. As we come to Jesus, and begin to pray, 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 we change our imagination. So that typically we see the world in one way. I think when we are with Jesus, we start to imagine something different. And that's exactly how we starting teaching here. If we start imagining something different, and then we practice something different, it gives us an experience of something different, like tasting new food, that increases our appetite to want to do that again. And so the cycle can continue over and over again. Imagination and prayer, practice, and then we experience and do it again. I think what I've found uh, in my life and people that I work with is that that kind of cycle actually changes us more than just about anything else. Again, it's not trying harder. It's not kind of aiming for a distant target that is just too hard to, to reach, much like what Jesus is teaching here. I think it's through simple everyday steps that starts in prayer. And I think that's where Jesus might be inviting us. To be connected to him. To follow him. To be with him as the master shall. And I think that's a picture of the church. Right? Where God's people, because of Jesus' radical love and forgiveness, can be honest about how murderous we are, how adulterous we are, and how our mouths really miss the intent We can also talk about pride or resentment or sloth or fear or envy or deceit, not as things that condemn us and crush us, but as opportunities for us to take those and say, how can I learn from the master and become less like this and more like him in the ways that I get caught often in my humans? So rather than being a place where we have to hide, church is actually the—it's like the greenhouse in which we can take all of who we are and find that we can grow. And I hope even in this community here that we can experience some of that. To become more and more like Jesus intends us to be, eating the richest of foods, living in the richest of way, because he is the master chef. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your hard, strong, but good words to us today. I pray that as we continue on in worship now and then feasting at your table.